Welcome to the Department 12 podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Bettina. My guest for this episode is Kiana Beckles. How are you today, Kiana? I'm all right. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Kiana, you are the founder and CEO of Leverage Assessments, Inc., based in New York City. Is that right? That is correct. All right. And uh, the reason that you're on the show is that uh, you have been involved or are currently involved in pre-test or pre-employment testing processes for law enforcement. Was that a correct assumption? That is correct. We provide uh, pre-employment testing as a service, and my background is in uh, promotional testing. Okay. Well, what I'm doing is something a little bit different than I normally uh, structure the interviews. What I've done is I've asked out on Twitter, uh, my followers on Twitter who follow the show, Mm share a little bit about your background and just ask, hey, what questions do you have? Uh-oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of Russian roulette today. Okay. A little bit. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, the first one's kind of a softball uh, okay. from Mark Traeger. And by the way, for those of you who are listening, uh, if I ask your question and I butcher your name, I'm sorry, but I really am reading them off in real time here. Mark okay. asks, what attributes are you generally looking to select and how do you do that? Um, well, Mark, um, when competency assessments are developed um, from scratch, they are based on a job analysis. And so you're literally doing a study of the job to determine which competencies are most important. And then that's what you are going to try to develop your assessment to measure. Um, and then for some standard practices, there are some general competencies that it's assumed will contribute to effectiveness on the job. So for, for instance, um, it is sort of generally assumed that if people are smarter, they'll do better on the job, right? That's why cognitive abilities assessments are so, um, are so popular. And then, um, let's see. And then there are certain like industry favorites as well. <laughs> So, and so it's a, it's a combination of all those things. It's a combination of doing a study of a job. Um, and then also you'll look to what your industry is doing. And then in some cases, you also look to what, what the community is doing, right? Like um, obviously in public safety and police testing, there's been a lot of pushback in the community around psychological assessments, around what is being measured during those assessments. Um, how are these police officers getting through these assessments? You know, they should be getting screened out. And so, um, and so the community might also dictate um, what you will be selecting for as well. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, just to let you know a little bit about the show, almost all of my listeners are either IO psychologists or graduate students. So they're going to be familiar with the general process, although they're, you know, most of us aren't as familiar with it as you are. But I think maybe what uh, Mark's asking specifically is, mm-hmm. like, what, a- what, what are the competencies or what are the attributes? And I actually misread a little bit. He's asking, what do we look to select out? Is there anything that you're looking uh, in a test for pre-employment uh, testing for a law enforcement that you're trying to disqualify? Anything you're not looking for? So if we, I'm sorry, can you, can you hear the, um, I'm sorry, let me see if I can disconnect this. Okay. Um, so I'm sorry, say that. You said, are there certain things that we are sc- looking to screen out? Yeah. So he, he actually wrote, what attributes 
are they generally looking to select out and how do they do that? So I'm, I'm making an inference that he's asking, is there something that we're looking for and we're saying that's a red flag? You know, this person shouldn't be a law enforcement officer. Um, so yes. So one of the services that we provide for, um, particularly for public safety are going to be psychological assessments. Um, your psychological assessments are generally going to be a two part process. The first part is a written assessment. Second part is an oral. The written assessments, um, they generally will want, um, it's a generally a sort of three, it's kind of a triple play. They want a personality predictor, um, a psychological predictor, as well as a background screen. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's, it's generally those three and how it plays out might be a little different. Um, but yes, each of those assessments will give you flags. Um, and then you're, you're going to, and then an actual clinical psychologist will look at the flags that each of those assessments has, uh, you know, has made you aware of, and then might make a pass or fail decision based on either of those flags. And so, so yes, yeah, so in a sense, there is a, there is a sort of screening out. Um, so to give you an example, you know, the background screen will ask you a lot of questions um, based on a lot of questions about your financial integrity. Um, you know, whether you've had a whether you got a lot of unpaid bills, whether you have an unpaid Verizon bill, or whether you have a, a unpaid credit cards, and so if you have a lot of a lot of flags that pop up in your um, financial integrity portion, um, it'll it'll pop up, and if you get enough of them, that assessment will give you a recommendation of what not recommend. So you, so the candidate would not be recommended for the position according to that assessment. And is that is that truly a recommendation, or is it more or less a done deal that the person isn't going to be selected? In other words, is the test binding, or is it just really like, hey, here's a report, uh, you know, decider, so, and then you do with it what you want? Ultimately, that the, the clinician is going to make a determination. I mean, ultimately that written assessment is there to provide you with some fodder, with some background. And then that clinician is going to go through all that information and make a determination. So no, the written assessment is not necessarily the end all be all, but it can, I mean, it, it can, it can be in some ways. I mean, there are some flags that are going to be more egregious than others. So for instance, if you're selecting, for instance, uh, public safety candidates and they are going to be, uh, you know, school safety agents, right? If you have anything in your background that, that, that uh, alludes to um, uh, inappropriate behavior with minors or something like that or, or misdemeanor or felony or anything that has to do with, with minors, then that might be an automatic fail in that case, right? Because of the population sure. that you're going to be dealing with and, and that just because of how that's going to, you know, directly impact the, the specific safety of the population that I'm sending you to work at. So there are some flags that are going to be more egregious than others, and then other flags that you'll be able to use um, as a part of an evidence packet okay. to pass or deny a candidate. Okay. So the written report is going to get handed over to a clinician who's going to use that as one piece of input, along with presumably maybe a candidate interview. 
mm-hmm. um, and make a recommendation from there. So is yeah. it fair to say that the clinician gets involved if and only if there are red flags, or is there a clinician involved in every single hire? Always a clinician. Oh, okay. Oh, man, I'm, I'm really learning something today. Okay, my next question <laughs> is from Jimmy Mundell, who asks, okay. what sort of Thank criterion you. measures are used for validity analysis? Particularly, how do you know when they are good measures when it seems oftentimes in police brutality incidents, the offending officer has a history of bad behavior? What could be improved in that area? So that was a long one. What sort of criterion measures are used for validity analysis, I guess, is the, the core of the question. To analyze the validity of the assessment? Yeah. So w- what sort of criterion measures are you used for validity analyses? Particularly, how do you know when they are good measures when it's something seems oftentimes in police brutality incidents? The offending officer has a history of bad behavior. So, I mean, well, we could break that question down a little bit. Um, first off, some departments, many departments are only using the psychological assessment as a part of a selection tool, pre-employment selection tool, which means that the candidate is um, being offered a job, so they have no history at that point. Okay. Uh, aside from, you know, maybe some other job that they've had, maybe some security positions, or they might have had some other position, but they don't necessarily have um, history as a as a police officer. Yeah. Um, and then in addition, they don't always have a whole lot of job history because uh, you have a you have an age requirement for most police departments, so you most departments are going to cut you off in your 30s. Um, so some of the candidates don't don't even necessarily have a whole lot of job history to speak of. Okay. Um, and then in terms of what you're using to validate those assessments, um, so what I'll say is that that's where, for me, it gets it gets interesting because um, many of the assessments that we use are not necessarily so. Like you know how you, if you're working in an organization internally as a psychologist or as an IO psychologist, you would develop an assessment like with the population that you're going to be working with, and then that assessment would apply to that same population. Um, but in police and public safety testing, it's a little different where in the private sector is developing that assessment somewhere else, um, or with a previous, with a population of police or some, some population that is similar to police. And then they're applying that to other departments in different regions. Um, so there is a little bit of a disconnect in the sense that because our police departments are all so different, mm-hmm. one validation study for one assessment that was developed in the middle of, of Iowa somewhere, for instance, is not necessarily going to be the same. And it's not really, it's not necessarily going to be generalizable to uh, candidates that we are assessing in the middle of an urban environment. Yeah. And, um, that's one of the challenges that we find sometimes because yeah. 
what will happen is it'll start to flag those candidates. So for instance, a lot of our New York City candidates right, are generally just stressed out. With, we're city people. We run on this high octane fuel. Um, I mean, pre-pandemic, you know, you are timing everything. It, t- it should take you 30 seconds to get the train. You've got right. 30 more seconds to get a bagel. You've got, and that's just kind of the world that we live in. And so if your assessment was validated in the middle of uh, South Dakota, where life might not be like that, yeah. then it's going to flag all of your candidates on these anxiety measures. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I actually read, um, you talked about catching the train and, you know, like you got 30 seconds to do everything in the city. But, um, <laughs> I read that, you know, most most NYPD cops don't live anywhere near uh, where they actually police because they can't afford to. Uh, and so they end up, or, or, you know, maybe I'm just thinking of Manhattan, but um, no, well, there's almost well, always a commute for them, a pretty significant commute. Uh, is that fair? Okay. Well, New York City is really... Is really um, it's kind of spread apart, um, and so you could first of all you could live in Brooklyn and service an area in Manhattan, and it takes you an hour or two hours to get to work. That's yeah. just the nature of travel in New York City pre-pandemic, um, and then. You also have a requirement. So police police officers currently are not are not allowed to serve in the district where they work in uh-huh. uh, the NYPD. And the reason that I mean, there are a lot of reasons why that is. And I believe that it generally speaks to. I believe that it generally speaks to. Um, attention between our public safety personnel and our communities. And the assumption is that if you live in a department where you have to police people, um, you'll come back home and they'll, they'll have, you know, thrown egg yolks at your door and you'll have to deal with that every day. Um, so when you are coming out of Academy, you can like select three choices as to where you want to work, but neither one of them can be, it located within the uh, the district of your current residence. Okay, so that's really interesting. In that, you know, one of the suggestions that I'm reading in the media for um, right, right, know, is for, the work for where some you live. of the police reform is that you know you ought to be living where uh, where you're walking a beat. That's a, mm-hmm. an interesting perspective that you're sharing, and I could probably keep you on here for an hour and a half, which I don't want to do. So I'm going to get back to my questions from Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Everything that you say sends me off in like three different directions, but more questions I want to ask you, you there, know? <laughs> there's a lot because there's so much. And, and this is part of why I was saying that it's important um, to, and this is what, you know, me and another group um, are getting ready to do with the Blacks and I.O. group is really just have a series which unpacks more of the legislation, more of the laws, more of the policies behind how we ended up where we are today. Like, so some of these videos that are coming out, um, on Twitter, on Facebook, or on YouTube, you know, they might seem incredibly shocking. But when you when you look back and you peel back all the layers of legislation, of policies, um, then it starts to make sense why that officer took those actions, even though they're egregious, even though they're ridiculous, right? And, and like beyond common logic, you'll start to understand um, why they are the way they are. And then that way, when we do 
pursue, um, you know, when we're pursuing stuff like defund the police or abolish police, we understand what those types of reforms will actually mean for our communities. Uh Because if we don't, if we don't understand how our previous legislation is impacting us, there's no way for us to get behind a reform today and expect it to have any real useful impact, you know? Well, that is definitely something that that I want to follow up on, uh, that I want to learn about and also to to share uh, with my audience. So I'll I'll include a link to, um, you you said, is it a committee or a group within PSYOP or is it a separate thing? Separate. Blacks and I.O. Blacks uh, in Industrial Organizational Psychology. And this is a forum that we'll be launching soon. It's an initiative of Law Enforcement Task Force. So um, stay tuned. I'll send you those deets. So that uh, so that we can we can kick it once more because there is there's a lot to talk about there's a lot to learn um, and especially since folks want to be involved you know we always everybody always wants um, engagement so now everybody's engaged right the whole community is engaged but we got to be we also got to be educated we got to understand what yeah. what our changes mean so like just to give you one example and I will allow you to get back to the to Twitter question <laughs> but like. Just to give you one example, right? Um, sure. yeah. um, one of the initiatives is, is the defund police initiative, right? Everybody's like, okay, why? And I totally, like, in, conceptually, right, uh-huh. if your police department is taking up 50% of your budget and you're closing down my community centers, it's a no-brainer. Open my community centers back up. Give me back my, you know, my my school-to-work programs. Give me back my funds for, for workforce um, initiatives and workforce development and like totally, totally all day. I understand the concept, but if you face I- any given police department tomorrow and you say, Hey, by the way, I'm going to cut out, you know, half of your budget. What decisions are they going to make in order to, to make that happen? And what generally happens is that they won't necessarily fire officers because nobody wants to fire people. It's just not something that people want to do. So what they'll do is they'll find ways to sort of stretch people out, right? Because they'll have less of a hiring budget. Training and hiring people is generally going to be more expensive. So they'll put up, probably put up a hiring freeze, but that means they'll have to overwork officers that are over there, that are, that are already there. And we already have, um, there's, a, there's a ton of evidence that shows that people who are fatigued or officers that are fatigued are going to make worse life or death decisions. That means they're more likely to shoot people. So this is this is why, you know, I talk about the importance of understanding the ramifications of the legislation, because, hey, defund police in conceptually wise sounds great. But when you come down to it, how that's implemented could end up being a really horrible, you know, having really horrible consequences. OK, thank you. So let's get back that. to Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that was awesome. Thank you. All right. Okay. So the next question is. Uh, and the reason I say it's awesome is because I think that in, at least in, in my social media world of IO people, there's mm-hmm. this kind of naive assumption that, uh, and, I, and I see it with law enforcement, I see it with politics, like, hey, we just need to apply IO stuff to these problems. And we have so much that we can do and so many ways to help. And that's all great. And I'm glad people are optimistic about that. But the layers of things that you were just talking about is the stuff that we're not aware of and it's the stuff that we need to be aware of okay yeah do you know about the court case about selection in new london connecticut police department 
Uh, this yeah. is Lisa Kath who asked if you're interested <laughs> to get get your thoughts on that if they're aware of it. Okay, send send me a link or something. Send me something to look at, and I'll I'll check it out and I'll get back to you. Okay, Lisa? I'll send that to you. I, I I do know about this one. Uh, this okay. is this was a case where um someone was disqualified from a job with the police department in the London, Connecticut, because he was deemed to be too intelligent. So he sued, uh, and um, I don't know whether it was a state court or federal, but they ruled that, no, it's perfectly okay uh, for this police department to put a, a ceiling on the intelligence limit to say, look, if you're you know more than this intelligent, you can't be a police officer here because you're probably going to get bored and, and quit. Uh, so that, that's the that's the story there is that there's an upper limit on intelligence. And I think I've heard this repeated that you can't be too smart to be a cop. You've got to be just smart enough, but you can't be too smart. Do you have any reaction to that? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, our, our police selection process is um, very um, it's very a lot of things. It's it's, it's very. Um, political. It's very litigious. Um, and although we try to set a lot of parameters in place so that everything is done the right way, um, you have statute law and you have case law. And, and until you get a scenario where somebody decides that somebody's too smart for something, which maybe that hasn't happened in the past, um, you'll get an incident like this. Um, the truth is that there isn't necessarily, like police departments are given the discretion as to, um, and I'll say, so I'll say police departments and vendors, because it's not always necessarily police departments making those real-time decisions. In some cases, it's whatever vendor they contracted to supply that test or to carry out that selection process. So, um... So as these decisions are being made, um, police departments and vendors um, sometimes have the discretion to use their judgment. Like everything is not just intuitively written down. Um, what, what will also happen, I mean, so a couple of things can happen. Um, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm just going through, I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll look m- more at this, Lisa, when I, <laughs> when I get a chance, but just off the top of my head, um, if a cognitive ability assessment is a, a cognitive ability assessment might be a part of a psychological screener in where you do have an individual person there saying, okay, yes or no, and then having to write up a justification as to why that person was a yes or no. And then in some cases, that can be difficult to do because each person is very different and you're not sure how to choose. You're not sure how to describe what you're seeing and how there is a misfit between that candidate between the job. And so sometimes in trying to figure out how to explain that in a report, you, you, you might say something like this person is above, is above intelligence. Um, or uh, be, because the other part of that is that that cognitive ability assessment was a part of a, uh, was it a part of some entry level or promotional assessment? Um, it could have been, but there generally would not be a cap as to 
like a, 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 a score above a certain amount that you would get that would disqualify okay. you. So like usually there's a, there's a cut score. So maybe yeah. that cut score is 65 or 70. And if you get over that, you're good to go. So for somebody to get a score that's too high and then uh, be denied a job, I would yeah. need to look. More. Okay. There's probably well, more. you know, the other thing is this is 17 years ago. This case came up in, in New Haven. So, you know, we can't really okay. expect you to speak for them. Um, but if I yeah. heard you correctly, I want to confirm something. I, I think I heard you say a few minutes ago, which is that sometimes there might be um, a mismatch between the candidate and the job. Uh, and there's kind of like a, a gut intuition that that's the, the case. And yeah. it is a way of because you can't say that you can't say hey don't hire this person because i have a gut feeling that my not. gut tells me so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so instead it might be some something like intelligence say this person's uh you know over a, overpowered yeah, for the job particularly in the psychologicals because it's such a it's such a gray area you know um psycho psych psychology in of itself as we know is not necessarily a hard science we do a lot of work and even overwork to try and turn constructs into numerical measures, right? Try to turn like quant qualitative data into quantitative data. And that doesn't always, uh, that doesn't always work out perfectly. And then the other piece about our assessments is that they're, they're designed based on somebody's prediction as to how somebody is supposed to behave. Right. So as a as an assessment developer, there's no way for me to predict how everybody's going to behave. Um, there's, just, there's just no way. So if somebody you, you're always going to have those outlier candidates that jump up sure. and are just doing something totally different that no assessment can really put its finger on. Um, you also have candidates that will get through the written assessments perfectly well and be recommended. And then you get them to the oral portion of the interview and they're just bizarre people to interact with. And you're not sure what to make of it. Yeah. It's um, probably a lot harder uh, to, to quantify um, that yeah. odd experience into a recommendation than compared to like, you know, you know you're looking at a written test. Yeah, it, it is. Like you're, you're sitting in an interview and you're saying, that you know this person is making me uncomfortable or this person has some anti-social characteristics that i can't quite put my finger on and am i comfortable putting them out in a community where they're going to interact with all kinds of people yeah. um you know this person you i've had interviews with people who just sort of say things um that are kind of offensive but like they didn't know they were doing it. Uh, and so you're trying to figure out like, is this, is this person going to piss somebody off and just start a fight just because they, they are not tuned in um, with the public that they're, they're working with. So you just, That's a you great have all example. kinds of, yeah, you, you just yeah. have all, all kinds of, you know, the, the human brain will like present itself in all kinds of ways. And then you have all the intercultural dynamics too, which, which add a whole different layer of complexity um, to trying to figure out if this person's behavior is normal within the context of where they're from. Is it, is it going to be normal within the context of the community that I'm going to hire them into? And all of that. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm going to move on to the next question so that I don't have you here all afternoon. That okay. was, <laughs> I, I like the fact that you used the like shared a defensive statement and didn't realize they were sharing it as an example of something that that strikes you subjectively as odd, but that's not necessarily yeah. going to show up on a test because I can hear some listeners with smoke coming out of their ears saying, well, you're just justifying the subjective judgment stuff or your gut or your intuition. But the example that you gave is, I think, a perfect example of when that has to be done. If somebody, especially a law enforcement officer, says something offensive, doesn't even realize they do it, that that's something that's where that it's going to affect their job performance, right? So, next it's question. It's not only going to. Well, let me say this too: that it's not only going to affect their job performance, but rookie officers also. It's not just that somebody in the community might get hurt, but rookie officers get hurt more often than anyone else. And if I'm putting you out there with less communication and less social skills than the average guy, I'm almost sending you out there to get yourself shot at. Wow. All right. So, okay. Let's um, move on. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't top that. All right. Christina Moran asks, and I think we've already answered this one, but I'll read it for the sake of completeness, how propensity for violence, abuse of power, and other contributors to behavior that does not fit the description to serve and protect or screened out. I think you are addressed that uh, in answer to an earlier question about uh, the, criteri the criterion validity and sort of the difficulty and complexity of doing that when your norming sample is maybe national um, mm -hmm. and it's tough. It's tough to make a decision about a New York City cop based on, you know, like a rural cop because the environment is so different. Uh, so yeah. the criterions are, are, are tough. Uh, yeah. The next question is from Catherine Slider, who asks, uh, considerations for avoiding adverse impact and selection, particularly with things like physical tests. If they've been doing it for a while, I'd be interested, if they, meaning you, have been doing this for a while, I'd be interested in knowing if and how the process has changed and what drove those changes. So how do you avoid adverse impact in selection related to physical tests? Physical ability tests? I assume that's what she's asking. Um, so adverse impacts is there is, there are, have been some problems with adverse impact for physical ability tests. Generally, um, it's not necessary, it's, it's not typically, you don't typically see adverse impacts when it comes to like black white populations saying that the black candidates are going to be less likely to be selected. Um, we have seen, um, um, women get discriminated against um, in physical abilities tests for long times, and um, a lot of um, a lot of departments have gone back to try to diversify their, their departments or add more women to their departments by doing all kinds of different things. Um, you know, looking at their physical physical abilities tests and, and tying it much closer to the job rather than just having people do 50 push-ups because we think that 50 push-ups is, you know, is best. Um, yeah. if, if you're, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, do, do I really need you to run five miles in 20 seconds? Maybe that's not necessary. And so um, I think that physical abilities, uh, physical abilities tests were also, um, a lot of it comes from uh, athletic science, and gym science uh, is not necessarily uh, rooted in a competency analysis that comes directly from public safety. Um, and so by tying them closely together, 
I think a lot of police departments have, have gone back and, and looked at their uh, physical abilities requirements and, and modified them or just updated their, their physical abilities tests. Okay. Um, so, but I mean, yes, in some cases, adverse impacts, the adverse impact is more prevalent with cognitive ability assessment, though. I think that it does pop up with physical ability tests sometimes, but it's not common. Okay. Not as common. All right. Uh, the next uh, question isn't really a question. It's a meme. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I asked, I said, you know, I'm interviewing someone who's developed pre-employment testing for the NYPD. Do you have questions? Rich Mendelson. I just posted a meme of Ross from Friends, like nodding his head, like, oh, yeah, I got questions. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. My question for Friends is how they afford to live in that apartment in New York City. Um, five of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have another question. I'm actually going to combine two of these because I think they're 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 very closely related. Reed Cleon or Cleon, sorry, Reed, uh, asked what were the primary goals and concerns of the police union and the city administration, how they were different, how they were managed, and Kevin Gray asks pretty much the same thing. How do they navigate the relationship between the union and the police department, and what concessions were made? So the overall, uh, I guess, question here is is what role if any, does the police union play in the selection process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, police unions play a, a role in, in in every in everything that police officers do. You know, police officers have rights. Um, police officers um, are protected by large unions and continue to advocate for police officers. Um, during the selection process, though, your candidate is not necessarily a police officer yet. So um, you are dealing with an applicant, a job applicant. Um, so the pull of the, I mean, well, no, that's not necessarily true. You, you also have some police unions that will... Um, do different things like they'll, they'll contract a vendor to review tests. Um, so you have you have uh, police unions that will, but then that's also more so for promotional. So I mean that's one thing is that somebody who's applying to be a police officer is not a police officer yet, so they're not necessarily. Yeah, they're not represented until they're a, a dues-paying member of that union. Right. So, yeah. Uh, the last question, or there's a couple more. Uh, one is Shane, from Shane Hodgson, but he, he asks the predict, predictive validity question. I think we've already addressed. There was one more question. However, I'm going to be prudent and not ask you this question on the air just because I'm concerned that if you answer it in public, it may yeah. uh, someone may yeah. use that uh, oh, question your, your, your judgment <laughs> in the future. But after I after I click off to turn the show, uh, turn the recording off, I'll, I'll let you know what that question was. And then uh, oh, if you want to answer it, maybe you could follow up and we could do it in the next episode when we talk about Blacks and I.O. Or maybe you could just go out on Twitter and answer it directly. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. This uh, was awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, I will include uh, links to your company uh, in the show notes, and uh, I will be talking to you, I hope, soon about the, the Blacks and I.O. Uh, project or initiative. And I really Absolutely. appreciate your time this afternoon. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we connected, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to more time together as well.